I would like you, if you would, to please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 over the next several weeks. And I want to introduce it to you this morning. I will not be apologizing for just briefly introducing the text that is before us and talking about its grand implications for I will be overtly technical and somewhat exegetical and theological as we march our way through this tremendous portion of Scripture, Romans 5, 12 to 21. And frankly, it isn't easy. It's not easy at all to work through this tremendous passage. There is so much here and so much that should indeed occupy our minds. It's both a feast and it is also treacherous. And we need to spend a great deal of time thinking through it, praying through it, meditating on it and responding to it. Before we begin to delve into the truths of Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, I want you to take your finger and mark your place there, but go over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. The reason I have mentioned the difficulty in understanding this text is no doubt affirmed by the Apostle Peter, even though we don't know for sure which portions of Scripture he would have been referring to in the text that I'll read to you. But in Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. And then this is what I want you to see. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And I have seen that in major ways in recent days. Some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. I trust I'm not in that category. As they do the other Scriptures. Now, of course, one thing that Peter mentions here is that Paul's writings are a part of the Scriptures. Isn't that a wonderful affirmation of Paul's writings, that they are indeed said to be Scripture. But also, he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And among the several things that Peter tells us there, one of them is very applicable to our study of Romans 5, 12 to 21. It's very hard to understand. I don't know which particular sections, as I said, of Paul's writings Peter might have been referring to, but if he ever came across Romans 5, 12 to 21, he would have said 
that very thing. It would have been the very reference of speaking of things hard to understand in the Pauline literature. Now there is in this section of Romans 5, 12 to 21, especially verses 12 to 14, what we might call a veritable host of potential theological landmines. To say nothing of the possible exegetical booby traps which surround this most difficult portion of Scripture. It's often been bringing weak-kneed expositors great tremble as they approach a congregation on this text. And I myself, as I said, have spent considerable time attempting to understand its import. And in order for us to rightly understand it, we're going to need to take our time. There is no need to rush our way through this portion of Romans chapter 5, for in these brief verses, verses 12 to 21, we have a most fundamental and far-reaching and important aspect that Paul wants to teach us regarding the doctrines of men and salvation. In fact, I would say, propose to you as so many others have, this might very well be one of the most important and crucial, if not the most important and crucial statements in our entire Bibles regarding the doctrine of man and the doctrine of salvation. It's a tremendously crucial text, as I said, and it's also, frankly, very stunning. And we should pause to meditate on the significance of Paul's weighty words here including the sometimes difficult theological understanding of his actual word meanings. And what I want to do this morning is I want to simply introduce to you an initial sense of Paul's weighty words about man and sin. And we'll not even try to get past verse 12. For in verse 12 alone, there is enough to occupy us, not just for this morning, but for a hundred mornings. And in addition, I want you to see the overall picture of what's going on here. For what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage is he's showing two heads, two realms, two spheres of existence, the existence of humanity. And underneath that, or on on top of that humanity, is the head of one Adam and the head of the other Christ. And I want to talk about that. And I want us to look at that in depth as we consider verse 12 this morning. And we would do well, I think, to read verses 12 to 21 so that we might have some initial familiarity with the text. And so you follow along as I read Romans 5, 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Now, Paul wants us to see, as I mentioned, that there are two realms of life, two seers of existence, with two corporate heads of humanity at the top of those realms or spheres. One realm or sphere is the first Adam, the first Adam, the one whom God created out of the dust of the ground, as Genesis tells us, and who represents all mankind as the corporate head of the human race. And the other is the so-called last Adam, Jesus Christ, who represents all the spiritually redeemed of humanity, the one who has come to reverse the sinful effects of the first Adam. Notice again the other contrasts that Paul mentions between these two men. Look at the latter part of verse 15. It says, if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's an obvious contrast, the first and the last Adam. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, that's Adam, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But, contrastatively, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, that's the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more, contrastatively, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see the obvious contrast there. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, That's the first Adam. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the last Adam. That's Christ. Two heads of the race. Two humanities, as it were, underneath either one. For as by the one man's disobedience, verse 19, the many were made sinners. That's the contrast with this. So that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, that's the first Adam, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the last Adam. Several of these, one, two, three, four, five, six times, very noticeably, the Apostle Paul gives us this great contrast between these two realms and between these two heads of those spheres of existence. While Paul does speak somewhat in verses 12 to 14 
of a comparison of these two, the overall thrust of this passage, my friends, is a contrast. There's a little bit of comparison in verses 12 to 14, but the vast majority of this one paragraph, this one portion of Scripture, is to show us the contrast, the stark contrast between the first Adam, that is Adam himself, and the last Adam, that is Jesus Christ. One speaks of death as a result of sin, while the other speaks of the grace of God to overcome the effects of sin. One speaks of condemnation, while the other speaks of justification. One speaks of a death reigning through that Adam, while the other speaks of a life reigning through the last Adam. One speaks of disobedience, the other speaks of obedience. One speaks of eternal death because of sin, the other speaks of eternal life because of righteousness. It's as though Paul is purposely showing two different kinds of mountain peaks. One depicting the first Adam, a mountain peak from which humanity has tragically descended all the way down into the valley of death below. And he's contrasting that with another kind of mountain peak, one that stands so majestically, so loftily, from which all the redeemed of humanity ascends to the height of triumph above. It's the lofty God in Christ, while the other speaks of the depths of disgrace and sin. Or I guess you could speak so much more concretely about it. Paul wants to show that in these verses, the last Adam restores what the first Adam lost. And I want you to see another place in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which also is from Paul's pen and shows as well this contrast, these two heads, Adam and Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin in verse 20. It says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Of course, this is a great chapter on the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came, for as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's obvious as to who it is, right? First Adam. This this Adam brought death. The last Adam, a man, Paul says, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see these two heads, these two contrasts here. But each in its own, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. In other words, he had to be raised from the dead first, and then those who would come after him, all the redeemed of humanity. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. And he must reign. Until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. See that mountain peak idea. He's in charge. He's the head. He's the lasting one. He redoes, recreates that which the first Adam drew humanity into sin. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, 
that is God, God the Father, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all, that the Trinity may be all in all. And we know this is talking about these two realms or spheres of existence, the first Adam, Christ, the uh, first Adam, Adam, the last Adam, Christ, because look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, We know that from the Genesis account. God breathed into him uh, the breath of life and man became a living soul. The first man, Adam, became a living living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's a reference to Christ. And this is why we are justified when we are talking about the last Adam to speak of Christ in that way. This is the justification of our terms. And it's a justification for seeing these two realms of existence. Bottom line is, you're either in one or the other category. You're either presently living under the realm of Adam, that is the realm of death and sin, or you're living in the realm of Christ, the last Adam, the realm or the reign of grace and life. No other options. As I heard a black preacher once say, you're either part of the saints or the ain'ts. You're either part of the last Adam and his realm of existence, or you're in the category or the realm or the sphere or the life of death and hell and judgment under the corporate head, Adam himself, the first Adam. And that's what's going on here in Romans 5, 12 to 21. And as we begin to develop all of the manifestations, the ramifications, the the implications of these corporate realms of existence... I want you to see the connection between verses 12 to 21 and what Paul has just said in verses 1 to 11. Obviously, there has to be some kind of connection. Paul wouldn't write those two things to be so different from one another that there is no connection at all. There has to be some kind of causal connection between the two. But having said that, this is immediately where some of these exegetical booby traps begin. Because the question needs to be asked, what is the connection? The, the question needs to be asked, what is the connection? What, what is going on here? What is the relationship of verses 12 to 21 to that which has gone before? Some exegetes say, well, verses 12 to 21 is sweeping all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18, and all the way forward. And so when the Apostle Paul says, therefore, just as... In verse 12, he's speaking about the sweeping series of statements that the Apostle Paul has made all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 11. Other exegetes say no. No. Verses 12 to 21, it's not that much of a sweeping collection that brings us to this therefore. They say no, it's probably... Chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 4. That's what he's referring to when he says, therefore. Others say, no, that's not correct. It would be uh, seemingly to them that the connection would be specifically with verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5, which we have just studied together. Some of them actually say, no, it isn't that either. It's actually just a couple of sentences or statements within verses 1 to 11. That's the causal connection to the therefore in chapter 5, verse 12. It's really verses 9 and 10. 
And some of them say, no, it's actually only verse 11 itself. And so you have a number of these. Many, many trees have given their lives for the sake of clarity on this point. We thank them for doing that. We want to be clear, don't we? And many commentators ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? What is it connecting to? And some of your Bibles may have the two Greek words translated, not just therefore, just as. Some of your Bibles may say because of this. How many of your Bibles say because of this? Some of you. Not many. That's a legitimate translation. The question is, what is the grammatical relationship between certainly verses 1 to 11? Even if it doesn't sweep all the way back to the prior chapters, what is the grammatical relationship of verses 1 to 11? What does it connect to? What is the point? You say one of the reasons surely must be because Paul is writing in sequential fashion, and certainly he is. But it seems as though there is some kind of major break between verses 1 to 11 and verse 12. And of course, it's not just theological, it could also be grammatical. Certainly it is to some extent, but what is it? How can we determine through this difficulty what is going on here? And the reason why this is significant is because so many people take chapters 5 through 8 and they make it a unit unto itself. They say chapters 1 through 4 is speaking specifically not only about depravity and sin, but also God's justification of the sinner, and certainly that's true. Then they say Paul's making a major step beyond now in chapter 5. And even if they don't conclude that it begins with verses 1 to 11, they say it definitely begins at verse 12. And they say it goes on all the way through chapter 8. And there seems to be some legitimacy to that. But the question is, how do we know? How do we know that that's the case? This is thought to be the way that our... Bibles in English have been translated. In fact, notice at the end of verse 12, there's a dash instead of a period. You see that? Most of your translations will have a dash. Mine does. And it's almost as though Paul began his point about sin and death coming into the world through Adam. And then at the end of that particular verse, verse 12, there's a dash because the sentence doesn't end, but it goes on to something else almost parenthetically. And so most grammarians, most exegetes would say that Paul begins the sentence in verse 12, even if we can't determine what the causal connection is with the prior verses, but he doesn't finish his sentence in verse 12. In fact, even grammatically, it it should go something like this, just as, so then. Just as, so then. But notice the end of verse 12 doesn't say that. In fact, you go all the way through to the latter part of verse 18. And you see the latter part of verse 18 saying, So one act of righteousness leads to justification. And many grammarians, and I think there's evidence to suggest that this is true, that's the so of just as of verse 12. Just as, so then. I think that's very, very good grammar even though, from our sensibilities, there's a lot going on in between. What's going on in verses 13 
to 17. Well, Paul takes a parenthetical bypass. He just wants to say something else. He doesn't want to finish his sentence at the end of verse 12. And since he's the writer, he can do whatever he wants. And since he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he must have had great warrant to do what he did. And that's what he's done. So he talks at the end of verse 12 about something that leads away from the point that he's making in the first part of the verse. And he goes from verses 13 to 18 until he gets back to his point. So it's a little parenthetical interlude. You might even be able to close the loop of this complete sentence here in verse 12 by taking all of the important but parenthetical verses, that is verses 13 to 18, out of it altogether and read verse 12 and verse 18 together. I'll do it for you. Listen to it. I'm going to read verse 12 and then verse 18. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 18. Therefore, picking up back on this point of verse 12, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just as, so one. Or, if you want to eliminate the repetition of the first part of verse 18, you could just read it like this. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, or so also, because it's completing the just as of verse 12, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The first, verse 12, is that negative. That's the contrast of the first Adam. The contrast is completed in verse 18. You have Adam, the first Adam, bringing death into the world, and as a result, death through sin, because all sinned and therefore all die. And positively, contrastatively, you have Jesus Christ through His one act of righteousness leading sinners to justification and life. That's what you have. And that's what Paul is doing here. And that's important. We need to know the Word of God and we need to know what we believe it's saying. And sometimes we have to be a little bit technical. Sometimes we have to work hard at trying to understand what is the point. And with a parenthetical phrase, as long as he has in between those two thoughts, there's a lot to deal with. And depending on how you translate these sentences it can definitely affect the way you think Paul's thought flows out of his argument. It is a therefore just as, which ties back very broadly to the chapters that have gone before, and certainly verses 1 to 11. And it moves on in this text to tie itself with verse 18, with some things in between, which we'll look at in due time. Now some people say, and the reasons why they say it, no, it just really looks at a couple of verses in verses 1 to 11. That certainly is true, but I don't think it's limited to that. Certainly not limited to that. You say, well, why is this important? What's the whole point? Why is this crucial? Well, think about it. If the Apostle Paul has just talked about three major things, justification, verses 1 to 11, redemption, verses 1 to 11, and reconciliation, verses 1 to 11, someone might very well come along and say, what are those things buttressed by? What is the foundation of those things? 
How can we know for sure, even though, Paul, you say that you can be assured that you are justified in Christ, you can be assured that you are redeemed in Christ, you can be assured that you have reconciliation with God, on what basis do you say such things? And Paul says, therefore, verse 12, I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to tell you, not with a direct answer to that question specifically, but with a more broad answer, and that answer is this. In order to say that you have been justified in Christ, that you've been redeemed in Christ, that you've been reconciled to God through Christ, you have to understand, Paul says, that there are two realms of existence. Two realms in the world. It would be like you do, maybe sometimes with your kids, or I certainly do with my kids, for which they may, may, may not always be thrilled to hear. They ask me a question and I say, well, let's go back a bit and let's try to answer that question in a more broad way, in a more generic way, maybe in a more lofty way. And in this case, of course, by Paul, in a more theological way. We don't know that this is specifically a question being asked, but certainly by Paul's answer, he is asserting the idea that if you want to know you've been truly justified, redeemed, reconciled to Christ, then you ought to know this, that Jesus Christ stands at the head of a particular race of people. And that race of people are a redeemed humanity. And what Christ did on the cross was to assure that everybody who is in union with Jesus Christ, is in that realm, that sphere of existence, that way of life. Jesus Christ stands as the head, the imprimatur, the only one who could lead us to a place of having the kinds of assurances that people want. You say, well, couldn't he say it in a different way? This is the way he's choosing to say it. And he wants to contrast that with anybody who might be, even in their lifestyle, even irrespective of their profession, but especially in their lifestyle, asking the question, I see these redeemed people, I see these reconciled people, I see these people who say they're justified, I'm looking at their life, I'm looking at their union, I'm looking at whose head they are under, and I ask myself the question, what about me? What about my life? What about my confession? What do I believe? And Paul says, look at your life. And he's going to say that very specifically in chapters 6 through 8. Look at your life. Are you a slave to righteousness? Are you a slave to your sin? He's going to say that in a number of different ways. Are you living in the realm of the old Adam? Are you living in the realm of the new Adam? Are you in the sphere of death and hell and judgment? Are you in the realm of life? Under the Spirit in Christ. There are only those two. And if you were to choose to answer that question, I don't know, then no doubt Paul would say, Who's your head? Under what realm do you live? And somewhere along the way, he would certainly say, What is your lifestyle? But by and large, the answer that he chooses to give here is, Under whose headship do you live? Is it the realm of Adam or is it the realm of Christ? You say, well, really, what is the significance of this, truly? Listen to the late S. Lewis Johnson, Jr., longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote a brilliant article about this portion of Scripture. In fact, this one verse, Romans 5.12, he says this, quote, Romans 5.12 is one of the crucial anthropological 
and soteriological statements of the New Testament. End quote. It is one of the most crucial man and sin statements of the New Testament. That's how important this is. And I would add that if indeed it is one of the crucial statements about man and sin, we'd better work hard to understand what Paul is saying here, right? We better understand what he's saying because our eternal destiny hangs on it. Our eternal destiny hangs on the understanding of this verse. That should make it important, right? It absolutely should. And because of the importance of this, we want to find out about verse 12. And that's what I want to do this morning. Look at verse 12. Here we find out about some of the greatest truths of Christianity in the midst of trying our best to avoid some theological landmines. And they are here. There are landmines from only one verse, you say? Romans 5.12? Yes. Because remember that any time you're talking about how sin, the sin of man, originated in the world, how sin itself affects man, and specifically how Adam's first sin spread to all men, you're going to have controversy, right? Those are fighting words. Those are controversial ideas. Just ask anybody on the street, how did sin come into the world? And then posit this assertion. I believe that Adam's first sin plunged the whole human race into sin, and that's why we're sinners. What response do you think you'd have? You'd have a whole host of people say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that some guy, thousands, thousands, thousands of years ago, had anything to do with my life. Nobody who sinned back then has any relationship to me whatsoever. You're, you're talking foolishness there. You say, no, but it's taught in Romans 5.12. And if they were to go to that passage with you, whether they be uh, someone who would profess Christianity or not, what might they say about Romans 5.12? They may say, I don't believe that. Or they may say, that's not what that teaches. That's why it's important. And one of the main reasons, of course, is because sinful man doesn't agree with the Word of God and what it says regarding the nature of man. Wouldn't it stand to reason that because of the sinful nature of man, they're not wanting to say what this text says about the nature of man? Of course. They want to say anything but what it says. I was reading this week a very insightful book called Understanding Paul. You know when you're a preacher... And when you come up against a difficult te text, you try to do a lot of reading. You try to do a lot of reading to understand Paul. And this excellent book helped me. It's by Stephen Westerholm. And he says this about the nature of man. Listen to this. Neither birds in cages nor those with broken wings are free to fly. Nor will removing the cage of a bird with broken wings bring it its deserved freedom. The wounded bird will be left as an easy prey for its foes. Contemporary notions of individual freedom stress relief, release from external constraints. All cages must be removed so that people may act as they choose. Isn't that how you might hear someone on the street respond to that question that I posed a moment ago? Of course. Such notions of freedom, he says, are consistent with a worldview 
that sees human beings as the only source of meaning, significant order, and value in the world. Is that right? They're just sort of self-contained. They don't see God outside the box of their own world view. That's what he's saying. They should be free to define for themselves what they find meaningful to pursue what they themselves choose to value. That's what the world says. But then he says this, from Paul's perspective, the notion that people should be free to do as they please is wildly out of touch with reality. Human beings are but a part of a larger whole whose meaning, purposeful order, and goodness are not their creation. And then he says this, to bulldoze whatever obstructs their convenience is a most ill-considered way to make their presence felt in the cosmos as God created it. You know what he's saying? You can't create a world of your own where you're the captain of your own ship, you're the master of your own destiny, self-contained, where you're self-absorbed, and then you try to bulldoze any obstruction in your way, including God. He's the one who created the cosmos. You can't create a world in which God doesn't exist when He clearly does. He says humans thrive as they embrace celebrate and pattern their lives according to the goodness of creation and the benevolent will of their maker. Like birds with broken wings, human beings who refuse to accept their place in God's world are no longer free to enjoy life as it was meant to be lived. You see, they think they're free, but they don't realize that their wings are broken. They can't really fly. Oh, they might try to hop on the ground grab all of the gusto that they can on the ground, but they just, if they would, if they could, could conceive of the idea that they could actually fly. They could actually fly. He ends by saying, from their disastrous enslavement to the lie of their own independence, the self-absorbed need to be set free. So try it. Have a conversation with someone about Romans 5.12. See what they're saying about that. See what their worldview is. Talk to people about where they are in relationship to the two spheres. Tell them that there are only two realms of existence. The realm of Adam, the realm of sin and death, and the realm of Christ, the realm of grace and life. See how they respond. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing for the Roman believers. Look at Romans 5.12. Four very easy points from this text. Verses, verse 12a, 12b, 12C and 12D. Very, very easy. At least to outline. Number one. Sin entered the world through Adam. That's what the first part of verse 12 says. Sin entered the world through Adam. You say, that's not hard to understand. That's exactly what it says. Number two. Death was the result of sin. Verse 12B. Death death was the result of sin. Thirdly. Death spread to all men. Death spread to all men. And fourthly, all men are therefore sinners. Again, you must be thinking, what's so difficult about these four statements, these four truths, these four realities? Only that most of the people in the world, billions of people don't believe it. That's the only challenge we have before us. They don't affirm it. Some people don't even affirm it on theological grounds, biblical grounds. This is what Paul says. And remember, we're talking about sinners who are challenged to think about their sinfulness 
And they're going to do everything they can to deny the very reality about what Paul says here regarding sin. And add something else to your thinking. Some of us don't question at all the reality of what Paul is teaching here. And we know it by experience. We know the experience of sin. We've sinned. We know that. And we believe the Bible and we accept it on its face value. But also add to the fact that since Paul doesn't go into any great detail about this text, now you have some challenges even for believers. You may not have somebody who comes along and says, look, I just flatly deny this. I I just contradict this. I don't think this is true. You have genuine believers who say, all right, I want to look at verse 12. It, It says sin entered the world through Adam. Well, what does that mean really? Death was the result of sin. What does that mean? Death spread to all men. What does that mean? And all men are therefore sinners. Well, what's the connection? Someone says, hey, for instance, I accept the truth that according to verse 12a, sin came into the world through one man. Because I do see sin in the world. I see sin in me. But was it only his first sin, Adam's sin, that Paul is speaking of here? What about Adam's other sins? Is it only his first sin that God was most concerned about, that is, the first sin of Adam? Just start asking yourselves a series of questions. That's what I did. I sat down with this text and I started asking myself a series of related questions about Romans 5.12. And at the end I was totally exhausted. But what does Paul say about these things? Is it only his concern about Adam's first sin? No, he goes on to talk about that. Well, why does he make such a big deal out of one sin? Remember when I read it, verse 17, because of one man's trespass. Look at verse 18, therefore as one trespass. You ask the question even from these texts, what is going on? Why is there no mention here in Romans about the fact that it was actually Eve who sinned first? Not Adam. Why is Adam charged with bringing sin into the world? Why is that? And besides that, wasn't sin already in the world? Since Lucifer, Satan himself, had sinned, and he was even in the Garden of Eden, sinfully enticing Eve before she sinned? Wasn't that a sin? Weren't his motives to be questioned at that instance? Wasn't there already sin in the world? How come Paul doesn't talk about that? Why doesn't Paul charge Lucifer with being the one who brought sin into the world and then began spreading it all around? We've got some major questions here just about the first part of verse 12. What's going on here? And, And look at verse 12b. What's the sense of this phrase, death through sin? Even a growing Christian can accept that statement because it's in the book of Genesis. The Bible says it explicitly. But what are the implications of verse 12b, death through sin? For instance, when Adam sinned, did he experience immediate spiritual death? Immediate physical death? Immediate eternal death? Or was it all three? If he obviously didn't receive immediate physical death, he kept on living, what kind of physical death? Was he beginning to die at that moment? 
Or about spiritual death? Did he immediately receive spiritual death and then only eventual physical death? And were Adam and Eve ultimately delivered from death, that is, spiritually speaking? Were they saved? Were they delivered? Will we see Adam and Eve in heaven? Does Paul, by mentioning Adam as the head of the race of sinners, sinners whose condemnation is an ultimate hell and judgment, ultimately include Adam, the sinner himself? If he's the head of the race, if he's the one that heads that whole sphere of existence, that whole realm, was he converted? Was he saved? Was he delivered from his sins? Is he in the realm of Christ now? Adam the man? Provocative questions. And hey, I have many questions about verse 12c. So death spread to all men. What questions do I have about that? You probably have had some of these questions also. First of all, how did death spread to all men? In what way? He says it, death spread to all men. But how? What's going on there? What is the truest sense of this spreading of death? I mean, wasn't Adam's sin his own sin? I mean, that's what I posed in terms of that sidewalk question, dialogue with someone. Somebody saying, look, I, I don't maybe even have any doubts about this guy Adam sinning. Maybe he was the first man. But what in tarnation is the connection between that guy and me? I don't even know him. He didn't even know me. Aren't we all responsible for our own sins and not for the sins of others? Or maybe this question, was Adam truly different? than from the rest of us? Was he different as a human being than the rest of us? If so, in what ways? Was he the only one who had the responsibility to decide for the whole human race what the human race was going to do? Did he have that kind of responsibility? And if so, since Adam does seem to be the real physical father of the human race, he was that first man, and in Union with Eve produced the children all the way down to our own day and no human beings have ever come from anyone other than Adam save Christ. What what is the sense that death has spread to all men? Is it that way? Is it just because of a physical physical descendancy? Is it that Adam is the progenitor of the race? Is, Is that why he's the head of the realm of that existence? Or was it because in addition to his being a sort of genetic progenitor, is there something else going on there? Is it not just that he was the head of the race and he was making decisions and therefore it spread to all of us by birth? Was it that he was the representative of the race? Something more than just a physical issue. And even if that's the case, was he making a choice to sin or not to sin as my representative head? Was I somehow in him making that decision with him? This what... This means, Romans 5.12. And you know what? I even have questions about verse 12d. It says, because all sinned. You say, what could that possibly mean? First of all, because I wasn't even there. How could it say, because all sinned? All who? Who's the all there? Is Paul saying here that all human beings sinned when Adam sinned, and therefore all human beings therefore deserve to die? It says, death spread to all men, because all sinned. Am I going to die a death because Adam made a choice when I wasn't anywhere around? 
Try that one on someone. Try to convince them that even though you weren't anywhere around and you didn't sin and Adam sinned, that that death spread to all men, including you, and then it says because you sinned. Because it says all sinned. How can these things be? And furthermore, even if I could answer this question with an affirmative kind of answer, is this what Paul is really saying? That every single human being who would ever live or would ever die did in fact sin at the time of Adam's first sin? Look at verse 19. What could it possibly mean when it so emphatically states, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Does this really mean that I was a sinner in Adam? Or is it that his sin simply made me a sinner? It says he was made or constituted a sinner. What kind of sinner? Run-of-the-mill sinner? Special sinner? Sinner in Adam only? Is it talking about my own personal choices to sin? Only sinning by nature, not by choice? Or both? Does all this mean that Adam was indeed my representative head, at least in some sense? I mean, it would have to be something like that, wouldn't it? Because frankly, none of the rest of us were even there. But wait a minute, let's think that through. If in truth I wasn't physically or mentally or even spiritually there, how could God really, truly hold any other human being responsible for a sin that somebody else committed? How could God do that? Doesn't Scripture seem to teach otherwise? And even if Scripture does teach that here in Romans 5.12 that I was somehow mysteriously there when Adam first sinned, and I sinned in him and with him, doesn't that inherently and patently seem unfair? I've actually had conversations with people, talking with them, some of them who've been agonizing over these questions, both believers and unbelievers, and say, isn't that unfair? How could I have done something when I wasn't even in existence yet? And speaking about this, doesn't it also seem to bring up the question, at least in the minds of some, of the very character of God, this unfairness? Is God fair by saying all sin in Adam? All deserve to die because all sin? Is that fair? Can a good, loving God really condemn me for something someone else chose to do, namely Adam? And speaking of this loving God, what about those like children? who die in their infancy, or those who are severely mentally handicapped, will they be condemned too? Because according to Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. And we know for a fact that children do die in infancy. Why do they die in the first place? Is it because they're dying for the sin in Adam? Is that what's going on? Is Paul covering that particular question about infants who die in their infancy or the mentally handicapped in Romans 5.14? Look at that. That says that death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does that mean? Is that a category which covers little babies who never consciously sin? the mentally infirm, or maybe even those who die in people groups who've never heard the gospel of Christ? 
Will God hold these eternally accountable? Those who've never heard? And will He do so just like those who die in infancy or the mentally infirmed? And what is the relationship between those kinds of categories, those three, and those who've heard the gospel over and over and over again? What's the relationship between those two? doesn't seem that Romans 5.12 does anything but say, all die, all are sinners, all will be judged, all will be condemned. Just flat blanket statements without a lot of verbiage to explain it. And those are just a few questions that I came up with. Whew. It's, a, it's an amazing thing once you really do sit down with your Bible and say, what about these things? And you might even say, this was a sermon? All you did was just ask a bunch of questions. Well, I hope that piqued your interest. Because in order for you to have those questions answered, you're going to have to come back next Sunday. And I may not be able to answer all those questions. But I trust that from Romans 5, 12 to 21, you'll have some of these questions answered because they are answered in the Word of God. And you might be coming this morning, you might be a first-time guest, and you might even be saying this. You know what? I didn't come to have theological questions answered per se. I came for someone to talk to me about my sin. You know what? Even if you didn't have all of these questions ever answered, which you should, and you should be a noble Berean, and you should check these things out according to the Word of God, and many, many people in the history of the church have spent tremendous amounts of time trying to answer this question. And whole theologies have been built up around those various answers. If you never have those questions answered in your mind, there is one question that you need to have answered this morning, and that is, what about your own sin? You might be saying something like this, regardless of the answers to these questions. Indeed, all of them. Everyone in this room, including myself, must still answer these very basic questions. Even if I can't ultimately determine the precise and complete answers to all of those things that you pose this, you pose today, you know this. You're a sinner. And so am I. You know you can't get around it. You know that it's in you. You know that it's through you. You know that you have a heart that sins, a heart that responds with wickedness, you know that. You know that by way of experience. There's not a person in this room or a person within the sound of my hearing who will not affirm the truth that you have sinned. And if you don't, you're lying to yourself. You might have been one of those persons on that sidewalk who was questioned, witnessed to by someone else. And you might have asserted such a thing. You might have said that that was a part of your life. You might have said that you didn't sin, or at least you didn't sin with the greater sins, trying to whitewash the reality of the sinfulness of your life. The bottom line is we all know, don't we, the experience of sin. And even if you don't have some of these grand theological questions answered either to your satisfaction or answered at all in this life, you know that one question that must be answered in this life is, what am I going to do with my sin? What is God's answer to that? As we close, I want you to look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21, for the answer to that question. 
God hasn't left us hanging. He's told us clearly. But now, Romans 3.21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The Old Testament said it was this way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the answer. God will place you into that mountain peak existence with a victory in a lofty way, seeing Christ as your head through faith for all who believe. For there is no distinction, no distinction between races, no distinction between people groups, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by His grace as a gift. You say all? It actually doesn't say that, does it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received how? By faith. You can deal with your sin this morning. You say, boy, I don't know the answers to all those questions that you ask, but I know this, I need forgiveness for my sins. That's what Paul says you can have. You can have forgiveness. You can have Jesus Christ as a propitiation, a satisfaction to be received by faith. And and what is God doing by doing this? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one. No one else but the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how your sin can be dealt with this morning. By placing your faith alone in Jesus Christ, so that He might be perceived as the just one, the one who deals radically with sin by judging it, and He did so by judging it on the cross through Jesus Christ, and that He also ultimately would be the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. That's the offer. I offer it to you this morning. You might not have any of your questions answered, save one. Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. Do you believe? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you turn from your sin asking Christ for forgiveness, He says, I will grant you that forgiveness. Be on the mountain peak where Christ is head. Let's pray together. Father, when we are ultimately standing before You, Will, be, will we be those people who are living under the realm of grace and life and the Spirit? Or will we be like Stephen Westerholm has said, birds with broken wings trying to get out of the cage, and even if we were to do so, we can't fly because our wings are broken. We think we're free. We think we can throw off restraints. We think we can throw off rules. We think we can throw off commandments. 
by doing it on our own, by saying no to our Creator and yes to whatever our own mind devises. But Lord, we know that that's the realm of the first Adam. It's the realm of death. It's the realm of sin. It's the realm of punishment. Lord, I pray for anyone here who recognizes by your opening of their eyes I'm on the wrong mountain. I'm in the wrong realm. I'm living the wrong existence. What is in the future for me is is death and judgment because of my sin. It's in me. It works its power. It works its control. I can't stop sinning. It's the characteristic aspect of my life. I can't say no to those sinful habits and patterns of my life. I need Christ. I need a new head. I need to be on the mountain peak of God. I need to follow the habits and patterns of a new life. I need Christ to forgive me. Grant me life in Him. I do believe. I came this morning wondering, searching, wanting, confused. But I can't get around the fact that I'm a sinner. And I need Christ. I need Him to forgive my sin. I need Him to to take me off one mountain and put me on another. Oh Christ, would You do that for me? Would You forgive me of my sins? Would You be my Lord and my Savior? Thank You for dying on the cross for me. Thank You for giving me life, forgiveness, redemption, justification, reconciliation. You've done it. And I thank You for it. And I want to follow You, Lord. I want to walk in Your ways. I want to pursue Your will. I want to be obedient to You. Show me the path. Deliver me from the harm of the existence of that old life. And make me walk in newness of life. Oh Lord, I pray for those within that realm today that You would do this very thing. And for us who are already believers, thank You for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Your beloved Son. And may we praise and work and labor and enjoy all that You have for us. Christ, You're not only the head and realm of my existence, You're the head of the body of the church. And I pray that You would grant me greater light, greater understanding as I try to answer these questions about that which I've been delivered from. Lord, Allow me to understand by your illuminating power the answers to some of these questions so that I might be able to give those answers to others who ask. May we study and learn and grow. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.